Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, July 14th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Every week for the last 11 years or so, Andrew, I ask you what's happening in the publishing world. And this week, we start with a book that collects answers to that same question from dozens of other publishing insiders. Among Friends, an illustrated oral history of American book publishing and book selling in the 20th century by Buzz Teacher. And PW wrote about it this week. Yeah, I actually am really looking forward to this book, and I can't wait to dive in myself. It's a doorstopper. I'll warn you now. It's It was, I guess, originally set to be at 350 pages or so when it was commissioned, and it's now at 576 pages. And that's because there was an overwhelming industry response. The book includes more than 100 personal essays from some major book business figures over the past half century, including Tom Borders and Joni Evans and Jane Friedman and Daniel Halpern, uh, Dick Snyder, Nan Talese, Carolyn Workman, even Publishers Weekly owner George Slowick contributed an essay. And the book came about, you know, because Teacher was researching a project that he was planning to, you know, use to mark the 50th anniversary of the launch of Running Press, the independent publisher he founded with his brother in 1972. It, of course, was sold to Perseus in 2002. But as he began to contact colleagues, he soon stumbled upon a new direction and started commissioning essays from people across all sectors of the book business uh, that sort of detailed what publishing in the latter part of the 20th century was like. And he said it just really snowballed from there. 576 pages now. So mark your calendars. The book is set to be published on September 23rd. And it's surely going to be a milestone, I think, book in the history of publishing. And I love reading about publishing history. And I'm sure we'll be talking about some of the contents of this book more on this show when it's out in the fall. Last week, you reported briefly on a class action lawsuit filed by two authors alleging copyright infringement by OpenAI for copying and using their books to train its ChatGPT offering. This week, a second suit was filed. For PW, you take a deep dive into the cases. Yeah, so authors have now joined the growing list of concern creators suing tech developers over their much-hyped generative AI technology. And we talked about it a little bit on last week's show. Uh, the first suit from authors was filed on June 28th. And then on July 7th, a second suit was filed on behalf of three more authors, including the comedian and actor Sarah Silverman, who personal point of privilege, I think is amazing. The suits were filed by the Joseph Severi Law Firm. Uh, they're filed against the Microsoft-backed OpenAI, which, as you know, is the creators of ChatGPT, or the owners now, at least, of ChatGPT. And the second suit actually adds Meta, who are the developers of a suite of AI applications known as Llama. Both suits really turn on the claim that these AI developers infringed the author's copyrights by copying and using their books to train AI models without permission. The suit even suggests that the AI is likely trained on pirate editions scraped from notorious ebook pirate sites. And talking about the suits, a spokesperson for the firm told Ars Technica that if left unchecked, these AI models were, that were built with stolen works could eventually replace the authors they stole from and frame the litigation as part of a larger fight for preserving ownership rights for all artists and all creators. And that's a position that this very savvy law firm, the Severi Law Firm, 
is used to really sort of effectively grab the poll position. And what I think we all see is this AI litigation race. Uh, the Severi firm has filed a number of lawsuits across the spectrum of, shall we say, increasingly freaked out creative communities in recent months. In November of 2022, the firm filed a class action infringement suit against GitHub on behalf of software developers. And in January, the firm sued three AI image generators on behalf of a group of artists. And those cases are still pending. And like most copyright cases, uh, especially cases that involve new technology, they've sort of divided opinions among copyright experts, right? With you know those on the tech side claiming that you know using unlicensed copyrighted works to train AI is clearly transformative and thus a fair use. While those on the creator and, and you know publisher side argue that questions of ownership and provenance can simply be waved away, certainly not amid the hype of this you know, what they call a new tech bubble. But in terms of this suit, the author suit, I spoke to a number of lawyers over the last week, and they all agreed. The case here is unlikely to succeed as it's now filed. But the bigger and more interesting question that we sort of backed into in our discussions was how effective copyright litigation is going to be in protecting creatives, creative industries, writers, artists from the vagaries of AI. And the answer there, lawyers say, is kind of mixed. And what did you learn in those interviews about the challenges the case may face? Yeah, so no surprise to anyone who you know, was around for the Google Books decision. Um, the case law at this point pretty strongly argues for fair use, right? Even if the suits get past the thorny threshold issues that are associated with how AI training actually works and how AI actually works, uh, and that's not a sure thing, lawyers agree that there is just ample case law here, including the landmark decision in the Google Books case, and there's Kelly versus Arebasoft, and uh, a case uh, against a plagiarism detector, turnitin.com. All of these cases really augur for fair use. Basically, it comes down to this. Look, if Google's bulk copying of books and their display uh, for tens of millions of books was comfortably found by the courts to be sufficiently transformative and thus fair use, it's hard to see how using books for training AI would not be. But at the same time, one lawyer told me that he understood why these cases were filed. You know, I don't think the cases have legs, the lawyer said. Uh, and this lawyer was self-described as very pro-enforcement. But somebody has to make a test case, right? Otherwise, there's nothing but blogging and opinion pieces and stance-taking by proponents on either side of the issue. At the same time, ultimately, this lawyer told me there's just too much established case law to support this kind of transformative use as a fair use. Now, again, nothing is a sure thing ever in copyright, and especially not when it comes to fair use law. And Cornell law professor James Grimmelman who I leaned on extensively back in the days of the Google case, who wrote extensively about Google and is now following AI developments closely, basically agrees that AI companies today have some powerful precedents to lean on. But he also conceded that he's a little more sympathetic in principle to the idea that some AI models may be infringing. The difference, he says, between AI and Google Books is that some AI models could emit infringing works, whereas you know Snippet View in Google Books was specifically designed to prevent that kind of output infringement, and you know that really could sort of shape or at least inflect the fair use analysis. Although he says there are still a lot of factors pointing to transformative use here, and as for whether or not the AI in question 
was trained using illegal copies, whether that could make a difference here. It's a complicating factor, Grimmelman said, though probably not decisive. You know, he explained to me that there's an orthodox copyright analysis that says if the output is not infringing, then the internal process is likely to be found transformative. Still, he says that what he calls the potentially unsavory origins of the material could certainly play into the fair use analysis. Authors and publishers alike must wonder whether copyright law and lawsuits can be an effective tool for gaining leverage with these AI solutions. Andrew, what did you hear? So I heard that it's a tool, but probably not the best tool and probably not a primary tool for reining in uh, or putting guardrails on AI. Uh, In a June 29 statement, the Authors Guild applauded the filing of this litigation. But at the same time in their statement, it seems like they hedged a little bit, right? They said, you know, using authors works to create AI without consent or compensation is blatantly unfair, whether or not a court ultimately finds it to be fair use. Same thing was said about Google Books, I'll note. Furthermore, Guild officials go on to note that they have been lobbying aggressively, that's their words, for legislation that would clarify that permission is required to use books, articles, and other copyrighted work, that's a lot of work, in generative AI systems, and for establishing a collective licensing solution to getting those permissions, right, to making that feasible. But all of the lawyers that I spoke to just shook their heads. They could not believe that a collective licensing uh, model on that scale could be pulled off. And they told me that a permissions-based licensing solution really seems, well, unlikely to happen. And more to the point, even if that somehow did come to pass, whether by legislation or by court order, that it really is unlikely to sufficiently address the potentially massive issues presented by the emergence of generative AI. One lawyer told me whatever pennies would flow to somebody from this kind of a license isn't going to come close to making up for the disruption that could happen here. And, you know, two final notes, I guess, on all of this. The first is that unlike so many copyright cases, there actually is a lot of agreement on this issue. And the issue that I'm talking about is that AI does need to have some guardrails. Even among people who disagree over the application of copyright law here, but they do agree that, you know, there needs to be some guardrails. And I think we're seeing now what some of those more effective approaches might look like, right? You've got writers striking that are pushing for guardrails on the use of AI in their labor contracts. And, you know, just this week we learned that open AI is actually being investigated by the FTC. So those are probably going to be more effective ways to approach AI. Uh, The conclusion that I heard is that the vast majority of problems around AI are not specifically copyright problems. Uh, They're policy problems that are going to require broader policy solutions. And while James Grimmelman agreed that copyright can't necessarily offer a comprehensive solution to all these policy problems, it should be part of the mix. So even if these cases don't succeed, uh, the experts and lawyers that I spoke to at least said, you know, these discussions around copyright and AI and even the lawsuits are worth having. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the program, in late June, the Mistetsky Arsenal in the historic center of Kiev was transformed into a giant bookstore and literary salon for the annual International Book Arsenal Festival that is a highlight of the Ukrainian publishing year. It's difficult to imagine more challenging circumstances for a book festival than to be held during wartime. Yulia Kozlovets, the book festival's coordinator, told me what the event meant to Ukrainian authors, publishers, and booksellers. 
when everything matters, it's about this moment in which we are living now. We are living in the moment of time when for our nation, for everybody in Ukraine, things have their actual meaning. When you are telling people that we are wishing you the uh, calm night, it means that we really are wishing the, the night without sirenas and or without the bombshelling sounds. When we are speaking about the freedom, we are thinking about freeing of our territories, freeing of the prisoners, of uh, the occupants, freeing of our land or homes. Uh, we are speaking also about the freedom as a main idea of Ukrainians who are fighting for our freedom, for Ukraine to be free. A book festival that matters in Kiev. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.